Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Whether it's COVID-19, influenza, or RSV, it seems like everyone's been getting sick lately. But how much of that perception is reality? Are current variants of viruses more, less, or more or less similarly prevalent than past years? And what can we do to keep sickness away or deal with it better at the personal and public level? Dr. Alexander Garza is SSM Health Chief Community Health Officer, and he joins us now to talk through those questions and answer some of the ones you sent in, too. Dr. Garza, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's talk generally about viruses. I mean, what is it that we know about the current rates of COVID-19, influenza, and RSV in the country? Sure. Um, They uh, are not doing very badly right now, I would say. So, um, you know, from each of those individual viruses, uh, they're all uh, starting to come down now. So COVID-19, if you look at the CDC map from across the country, most of those counties are green. There's a few yellows, a few reds. All of that is dependent upon hospitalizations and different things like that. But but overall, it's, it's doing pretty well. Um, the influenza counts as well do not seem to be in a very concerning territory right mm-hmm. now and seem to have uh, peaked and are starting to come down. And the same thing with RSV. Um, now, we had a particular, particularly bad season uh, last year with RSV, but it doesn't seem to be um, nearly as, as dramatic as it was in years past. Mm-hmm. And so, again, um, starting to see some good trends, which means they're starting to come down. So is what we're, tip- what we're seeing now, that is, is it typical for winter, winter virus transmissions? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Uh, you know, it's all dependent upon the virus as well. So as I think most people understand, there's um, particular years where we have bad flu seasons and where the virus is uh, particularly virulent and, and spread easier. And, uh, and we see that in people that are sick, come into the hospital, things like that. Uh, we, we thankfully are not having a um, terrible COVID season or a ter- terrible COVID wave, I should say. Uh, right now because the virus isn't as virulent as it was in the past. Even though it seems like everybody's getting COVID now, there's fewer people needing to come to the hospital for that. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, is there something that you wish people better understood about what flu season is and and what we should be doing during that time? Well, it's really a reiteration of all of those things that we've said really for, for for years now, um, but I think we're particularly prevalent during the COVID, the, the massive waves during COVID, mm-hmm. which are, hey, if you're sick, uh, stay at home, isolate yourself. You know, if you're at particular risk, wear a mask, wash your hands, you know, good ventilation, all of those things. And of course, vaccines, uh, get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And are you saying that because people are still not doing that? Well, it, you know, it's... Um, you get asked this quite a bit, you know, what can I do to, to remain safe? And But it bears repeating um, that these are very simple and, and proven techniques to reduce spread of respiratory viruses and to 
and to help protect uh, those around you as well. Mm-hmm. On that note of vaccines, Tony asks uh, about the the latest COVID vaccine. She says, I, I had my latest COVID vaccine in October. Did I receive the most updated vaccine? She should have. It was approved by the FDA in September of last year. And I would at least like to hope that uh, that whoever was offering her the vaccine made sure that it was uh, the most updated vaccine. Now, now bear in mind that the updated uh, vaccine is, of course, based off of a variant that was different than the one that's circulating right now. So mm-hmm. we have the JN1 variant. Now, they're, they're related, uh, but they are different. Um, but the, the current vaccine <coughs> for Omicron is, is um, protective against JN1 as well. JN1 mm-hmm. is the dominant strain right now. And so, um, but you're, you're always at a little bit of a lag, particularly with COVID, uh, because of the nature of the virus and, and how quickly it was changing. Mm-hmm. And what is it, Dr. Garza, that is notable about this latest COVID variant J and one. There's not um, a ton different clinically, so still produces the same symptoms: uh, fever, muscle aches, all the things that you would normally get with a viral infection. From a molecular level, uh, it's it's interesting because of how many mutations it had. It had uh, 30 different mutations on the spike protein, which, if you're a virus, what you're trying to do is you're trying to evade the immune system, so that way you can replicate and continue to grow. Uh, so um, from the molecular level, it's very different. Uh, from a clinical level, not too much different. Mm-hmm. Now, we received several listener questions related to Paxlovid. Mm-hmm. So Jeffrey emails, does successful treatment with Paxlovid reduce the incidence of long COVID? And then William emailed with the question, whether you know, do you believe that Paxlovid was prescribed for a longer course, or that is, if it were prescribed for a longer course than five days, would it prevent rebounds? Right. So the jury is still out on both of those questions. Um, So there are a couple of papers that have come out, uh, one advocating that there was a decrease in long COVID symptoms with treatment of Paxlovid. Uh, there was another paper that came out that said there was no difference. And so I, I think there's still um, a body of knowledge that needs to be investigated before you can firmly land on, yes, either it does or no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as far as the prolonged um, treatment, uh, there's still the jury is out on that as well. So um, there is some data that says there's no difference in, quote unquote, rebound, whether you take Paxlovid or not. Uh, but clearly there are symptoms that are rebound. The the good news, though, is that they're fairly self-limited, and it's actually um, not a common occurrence. And, and, so, and so it's not um, something that you would be hugely concerned about with, with the Paxlovid treatment. There are trials going on right now to see if prolonged um, uh, Paxlovid treatment does help with long-term COVID symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are ongoing right now. Um, it'll take a while before the science comes out, before it gets published, and before any treatment regimens get adjusted. Mm-hmm. And more papers to come. More papers yeah. to come. So earlier this month, the city of St. Louis issued a mask mandate, going back to masks, and they issued it for city employees. And then they updated their policy by saying they strongly recommend their employees mask indoors. 
Are area hospitals reinstating mask requirements, Doctor? It depends on the healthcare system. So each of them, of course, come up with their their own rules about uh, masking. Um, it's really dependent, though, and so this is. Um, I, th- I think the the thing really to to um, highlight here is that this is really no different than what we had done previously, even before COVID. We had had masking rules about when influenza was in a particularly bad year. Um, we also um, would limit visitation uh, during particularly bad flu seasons as well. And so, uh, using again tried and true infection prevention measures. Uh, to prevent spread either within the hospital, limiting people that can come into the hospital, all of those different things uh, because we we deal with respiratory viruses every year. Mm-hmm. And so we have pretty good plans on how to limit spread. Yeah. Doctor, what's your take on the way that the city rolled out that requirement and then, you know, rescinded it so quickly or in, they, they adjusted it or amended it? <laughs> sure. It, it, it's always challenging. Um, to uh, roll out these recommendations, uh, particularly, I'd say, within the context of the last couple of years within COVID. Um, so certainly uh, masking and, and other preventive measures um, had political undertones to them. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why communications is, is such an important piece. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would hesitate to think that everybody anticipated the, sort of the blowback that was going to come from this. Um, but unfortunately, in, in public health nowadays and in healthcare, uh, beyond the science and beyond the, the clinical realm, uh, there's also now has to be an anticipation of the, the political and, and how the community is going to react uh, to certain messaging. Mm-hmm. And so that's an important thing to understand when you're trying to communicate messages. Right, right. So we had a question from Mary, and Mary asks, why are more healthcare facilities not requiring employees and visitors to wear respirator masks such as KN95 and N95 at all times? We require gloves, hand washing, and sterile needles to reduce pathogen spread. So why would wearing respirators not be required as a standard infection control practice as well? Right. So uh, excellent question, but the practices are based off of um, really, again, tried and true evidence-based infection prevention techniques. And so depending upon what the pathogen is, um, where we are in either a flu season or in a COVID wave, things like that, really dictates on the level of protection uh, that we're going to use. Mm-hmm. And then I, I would also add that, you know, it's it's also, um, you know, employees don't like to wear masks. They're, they're constricting. It's difficult to communicate with. And if there's not valid evidence to support wearing this mask all of the time, uh, then you just you can't make that recommendation based on the science. Mm-hmm. And so... And so the, there's a couple of reasons why that's why that happens. Mm-hmm. We also heard from Peggy. Peggy wrote, since my husband and I are both over 65, I'm also a cancer survivor. We have never stopped wearing masks uh, everywhere we go. The one time my husband took his mask off to eat in a restaurant that was mostly empty, he caught COVID. We are fully vaccinated and boosted for COVID, always get our flu shots and received our RSV vaccination this fall. We're usually the only people and or there um, an occasional handful of others who are wearing masks. Are we being overly cautious? I, I don't think so. I mean, she sounded more like the ideal uh, sort of a person to listen to, to, to advice. And so certainly if you're in a high-risk category, 
uh, you'll want to take all of those protection measures, particularly if it's in um, you know a high season where there's a lot of virus circulating around, like we've had with flu, RSV, and, and COVID. Um, so, so when I t- when I talk with people about what's appropriate, it really comes down to the individual level now. Now, previously it was more at the community level, but much much more at the individual level now. Mm-hmm. And so, what are your risk factors for having a poor outcome? So, if you're elderly, have a chronic condition, immunosuppression, all of those things, then you want to be a little bit more careful than somebody who's young, otherwise healthy, has no medical conditions, and is properly immunized. Yeah. And so so I don't think that that is going overboard by any stretch. Mm-hmm. We're talking about respiratory viruses and public health with SSM Health Chief Community Health Officer, Dr. Alex Garza. Dr. Garza, it's been nearly four years since the earliest days of the coronavirus pandemic. The World Health Organization and the Biden administration ended their declared health emergencies last year. How would you characterize where we are today? What stage of pandemic are we in? Yeah, so the acute phase is clearly over. So um, that meaning taking these dramatic measures in order to prevent spread and in order to, to decrease the um, morbidity and mortality from, from the circulating virus. Um, uh, I think it's still up for debate whether it's in an endemic phase, so whether there's low levels of, of disease or predictable levels really more so than, than low levels of disease circulating out around the community because we still have these increases in activity, but they're becoming much more predictable now. Mm-hmm. And so, as we saw this year, um, low-level activity increases in the wintertime right when you would expect respiratory diseases to to come along. But clearly, we're through uh, the acute phase Mm -hmm. of the pandemic now. So government agencies then declaring an end to the emergency, Mm -hmm. it shifts in, in some sense. As you said, the responsibility now for curbing COVID has mm-hmm. gone from leaders to the public or, or individual members uh, of the public. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that the people are up to the task? I do. So, um, so let me explain a little bit about declaring public health emergency. So, so that it's also um, sort of a legal term as well, because it allows then the secretary and the government to do certain things, mm. such as issue emergency use authorizations and and do all of these things that they normally wouldn't do during a public health emergency. So that's sort of from the the legal side. I think what what you're getting at though is is more from the public perception or maybe. Um, you know, what are some of the things that uh, now now it's more or less of a, hey, the government wants you to do these things more so that it's more at the community level. Mm-hmm. And and I, I would draw us back to those original comments that I made that this is really no different than respiratory season that we've sure. had before, where we're probably a little bit more in tune with it now, just because of the last four years where mm-hmm. we recognize that there are specific things that we can do to reduce our risk to both individuals and to the community. And I think you would recognize that it's much more commonplace now to see um, individuals wearing masks, much more than before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, and it's become much more acceptable, I would say, as a, as a society as mm-hmm. well, for individuals to use those. You know, Dr. Garza, you served as the commander of the St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force throughout the pandemic period. 
What lessons did you take away from your time in that role? I think the biggest lesson uh, that I took away is that we can tackle large, difficult, complex problems when we come together, both as a healthcare community, but I think as a as a broader uh, community as well. Um, but I, I would say that uh, having the healthcare systems come together to um, share information, to talk about things, to come up with you know a very common procedures or approaches to different things, trying to evaluate what is the impact across our healthcare systems, um, was was uh, it was both exciting, scary, um, but also I, I think um, just a, a, a big change in how we address big issues mm-hmm. um, across our community. Yeah. Well, insofar as next pandemic goes, <laughs> I mean, health experts suggest it's not a matter of whether, but when the next pandemic will take place. You know, and it, it's common to hear everyday folks say that we're not prepared for it. I mean, do you agree with that sentiment? And I mean, to what extent are institutions ready yeah, I I agree with you that I believe that um, there's a greater chance than zero that there will be another pandemic at some time in the future. Now, I think de- determining on when that time is is challenging. Um, so are we prepared? Um, I think we're better prepared now than we were before the COVID-19 pandemic. And part of that is we realized how difficult it is to be prepared for something of such a a global, that had global consequences to it. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that there is efforts at both the federal, state, and local level to um, improve uh, pandemic preparedness. Now, some of the challenges, though, that I think that we have is is we have um, a fairly unhealthy population. So if you look at statistics from around the globe, especially from economically developed countries, the, the U.S. isn't faring so well. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of chronic conditions. We have a lot of diabetes, heart disease, um, obesity, all of those things. So if you if you think about um, the pandemic purely from like a virus standpoint, I think it's you know more than likely that this will come about. If you think about it from a resiliency standpoint, I think that's where we have a lot of ground to make up mm-hmm. in trying to create communities that could that would be better able to withstand. Uh, the next pandemic. And what would help with that? <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a really, um, that'd be an entire no- another show. Sure. So, uh, Very briefly. <laughs> yes, yes. So anything that we can do to improve the health of the community. And when I say that, I don't mean we need more health care. Uh, so clearly we spend a lot of money on health care and we have a fairly unhealthy population. So it's um, improving uh, social supports, whether that's through Jobs, education, you know, access to health care, uh, better foods, better transportation, all of those things really create health in the community. And so, uh, to me at least, those are things that we could focus on now to make us a, a more resilient community. Mm-hmm. And all of those things were, were illuminated, brought to the fore because of, of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, given that um, and it's sort of where the general public is insofar as lessons learned. Um, and also, look, based on how things shook out, I mean, mm-hmm. do you see the public responding to future pandemics in the same way that we did with this one? Or, 
what what improvements might we uh, expect? Right. Um, you know, I, I think there's usually a predilection to dealing with um, issues in the moment. And so it can be really challenging to do the long game uh, rather than uh, being reactionary to what's in front of you. Um, people have busy lives. Um, you know, there's uh, a million different things that are coming at you. We have global issues that we're dealing with now. And so it's it's challenging at times to um, to really get us on a path towards being a more healthy community when you're dealing with in-the-moment issues. So, you know, I don't want to be a, a complete pessimist, but but I do think that it's, it's really challenging um, to get us on that path to prevention mm -hmm. um, rather than reacting to a disease state. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something with your title, which sure. was commander of the St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force. And you're a colonel with more than 20 years of service in the U.S. Army Reserves, and you wrote a, a paper about how St. Louis's healthcare systems used a military decision-making process mm -hmm. as a foundational tool to plan against the viral threat. So, I mean, it may strike some as, like, it sounds too militaristic, mm -hmm. but, Doctor, what do a, a pandemic and a war have in common? I think they have a tremendous amount in common. Um, this really became apparent to me as we began thinking about how could we address the challenges of, of something that was so um, complex and enormous that um, it could really drive somebody into um, uncertainty or not being able to, to understand the breadth of what we were about to get into. And as I began, it was it actually came to me in a figure. It was an epi, what's called an epi curve, and it takes a look at cases and hospitalizations based on the the reproductive rate of of the virus. And and I took a look at it, and then I took a look at um, what's what is essentially a military curve for for warfare, and they were almost exactly the same. The shape mm -hmm. was the same. Mm -hmm. And when I started thinking more and more about it. Um, and started reading more and more, I felt like this is, if you think about warfare, warfare is across the continuum. It doesn't just affect the warfighter. It affects a community. There's different issues that you have to um, be involved in, whether it's communications, political, all of these different things. Clearly, this matched whatever a war could produce. If you think about the totality of what came about in the pandemic, economic slowdown, a lot of political disruption, all of these different things. This was a global issue. And one of the ways that you can sort of cut through all of the clutter is to use a dedicated process. And and the one that I found that was most appropriate was the mis military decision-making process, where it breaks down complexity into definable steps that then we could use in order to develop a plan moving forward. Mm -hmm. And how was that process, that military decision-making process, effective? I mean, is there like an, a, an example that you could point to um, that everyday folks would readily understand? Sure. Um, so it's a, it's a series of steps that uh, the planners need to work through. And, and the first step is to ask yourself, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? And that may seem like something that's very simple, 
uh, but it, it's absolutely required. And what is my, at the end of the day, what do I want the world to look like? So if you can envision an end state and you understand where you are right now, then you can start thinking about what do I need to do in order to get to my end state? And those are the steps that you need to walk through. So whether it's what are my assets? How many hospital beds do I have? How many nurses and physicians do I have? How many ventilators do I have? It's intelligence. And so that sounds like a scary term, but it's really what is the virus doing? Mm. What's its replication rate? How much death is it causing? All of these different things. What are my facts and assumptions? What do I know for sure? What can I assume is going to happen? What are some of the risks I'm willing to tolerate? And then what are some of my constraints? I mean, we still operate under a heavy regulated healthcare system. There's things like EMTALA. There's there's, um, regulatory requirements that we have to meet. And we have to understand all of this if we want to effectuate a solution. And then who are my partners? Um, You know, public health, big partner. our elected officials, our business leaders, our communications people, our media. You know, how are these people going to play in in this entire operation? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it, it helps you to think about um, or to organize all of those things into what's called a course of action. And then the, the course of action is something that has to be sustainable. It has to be feasible. It has to meet certain requirements in order for it to be um, a viable path. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, then you need to operate on that. Now, I don't want it to sound like, hey, we came up with this very detailed, you know, uh, triple appendix plan. <laughs> it was more of a broad concept about this is what we need to be doing. And, uh, and I'll, I'll just quote uh, Michael Hayden, who is the former director of national intelligence, who he, he made this comment when he was asked about how do you best organize the intelligence community. And he said it's not about unity of command. It's about unity of effort mm-hmm. and autonomy of action. So what he was saying is you need to get everybody moving in the same direction, but allow each of the parts to do what they're really good at it, as long as we're moving in the right direction. And that's what I think we could best summarize the work that we did. Mm-hmm. And as our last question here in just a minute or so, as Chief Community Health Officer mm-hmm. at SSM Health, what is it that you are focused on right now? Yeah, um, focused on a lot of things, actually. So, so we focus a lot on social determinants of health. And so those are the quite, you know, the number of things that I, that I talked to you about, about building a resilient community. So whether that's economic development, food insecurity, housing, all of those different things. We also are screening for the social determinants for our patients, trying to connect them to resources. Um, but there's a whole host of other things in the community that we're working on. Yeah, and I'm sure that we'll be talking about that in the future. <laughs> would love to. Dr. Alexander Garza is SSM Health Chief Community Health Officer. Dr. Garza, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. 
Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.